Lord, we're grateful for this day and grateful that we have this wonderful time of year where we recognize that you have revealed yourself to us in Christ. I pray that as we look in the Gospel of Paul, if you will, the book of Romans, that you would think our thoughts, that my words would be yours, that you would bend our wills to your own, and you would take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. For in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with that well, uh, familiar folk tale, Hans Christian Andersen's The Emperor's New Clothes. And so, uh, you might remember, it's, it's the story is told where a, a group of con men weavers come to a haberdashery-loving emperor and pitch him the idea that we're going to make you the finest outfit for the parade that you're going to parade in, your majesty. But only those who are truly wise and pure in heart will be able to see them. And he goes, oh, I like that idea, because he was a vain person. So they go, and they start to weave the invisible clothes. And they're just taking all the cash in the whole time. And so the day comes, and they clothe him. They get him to strip down to where he's butt naked, and then he just is dressed with nothing. Now, the whole kingdom knows that only the pure in heart and wise will be able to see them. And they don't want to admit that they can't see the clothes. So he's going down with no clothes through the town, and everybody's clapping for the the king. Beautiful, your majesty. Wonderful, wonderful, except the little boy. He turns to his mom and goes, Hey, the emperor's got no clothes. He's all natural. He's buck naked. One... And at once, everyone in the empire knew the truth, including the emperor. I share that with you this morning uh, about the honest remark of a small child who did not know enough to keep his mouth shut. He stripped away the hypocritical pretense of an entire nation. And so I share with you That tendency is within each and every one of us because we will tend to remain quiet while a fallacy is being promoted to which everyone is subscribing because we do not want to look like fools. And so as we return to the book of Romans throughout January, arriving at this third chapter, and I had Steve read us the end of the second chapter to get us caught up where we left off, We must keep in mind that this well describes the condition of the Jewish believers in the Roman church at the time. They imagined themselves clothed with a righteousness that was actually non-existent. They were duped by a misleading religious confidence. So Paul, like the little boy, stripped the layers of delusion from them. They saw themselves as wise. They saw themselves as guides to the blind, correctors of the foolish, teachers of the immature. But Paul, in this book of Romans, undresses them, proving that they have, just because they're circumcised, just because they've had the word of God, just because they're Jews, it doesn't mean you're saved. 
He also stripped away their errant confidence in such things. And he also indresses, undresses us, dear Anglican Christians, stripping away our misleading confidence in our having God's word, in our religious affiliations. All humankind, he says, Jew and Gentile alike, true righteousness is a matter of the heart. Look at verse 29 with me. Verse 29, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Now, as Paul arguments for the Jewish believers in Rome was devastating. It really did leave them spiritually naked. And Paul, who was widely experienced in this particular kind of debate, anticipated their objection. And so in verse 1, he just goes right there and says, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what value is circumcision? This is not a frivolous objection. And today, the phrase, we would probably phrase it differently. If our affiliation with God's people, if I was baptized as a baby, if I was confirmed, why does all that matter? Right? What does it mean to have salvation and to be under the umbrella of the church and Christianity? I think it's a fair question, especially for those of us who were raised up in the church. So I invite you to open up with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. If you're visiting with us, you can find it in the back of your bulletin. As we're going to see, oh, we have great advantages as God's people. Because God, number one, we have a true advantage because we have the word of God. And we have the word of God to protect us from the equality of sin, number two. The direction that sin takes us, number three. And number four, God provides a cure for that sin. All right, so that's what we're going to learn today. That we have the true advantage of God's word, even though we're hindered by the equality of sin. The direction that sin takes us, God gives us a cure for our sin. So let's look at this first, the advantage that we have of possessing the word of God. So Paul anticipates this in verses 1, and he comes back in verse 2. What advantage has a Jew? Verse 2, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with what? The oracles of God. Specifically, what he meant by that is the primary advantage that they have in having the Old Testament. That is an immense advantage that God's people have. It remains so for us today. The first advantage that it gives us in having the word of God is that we can know what God is like, who God is and what he's like. It teaches us that he's the all-powerful creator and sustainer of the universe, that he is perfect in holiness, justice, righteousness, love. We learn that there is also an infinite gulf between us and him, and that the God of the scriptures is majestic, transcendent, totally glorious, beyond our comprehension. And having this disclosure as believers is an immense help because this is not how the natural mind tends to think of God. Unbelievers always wrongly close the gap between God and humanity. They either bring God down or bring humanity up. 
Therefore, it's a huge advantage for those of us who have the written word of God. Secondly, it describes who we are, our nature and our purpose. And this is closely tied with the first blessing of having the word of God. Because if we see the majesty of God, we immediately see ourselves for who we truly are. Human beings who have this proper respect and understanding of God and Creator can begin to understand the mystery of their own being. This, coupled with the Scripture's revelation of our radical corruption, allows us to see ourselves as the people who we are. We're sinners to the core. And a fact that without the oracles of God, we cannot fully see. So our ultimate personal advantage in having God's word and God's written directions is that we, what is required of mankind is we know how to live our lives. We heard Jesus' words. We do it at the beginning of every service. We're to love the Lord of God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and love our neighbor as ourselves. Therefore, my friends, it is not a little thing that we have the Bible. It's a huge advantage that we have. And so therefore, we know who God is. We know what we are like. And we know how he calls us to live and what is required for salvation. So therefore, I charge you in the name of Christ, let's make the year 2018 a year of the Bible. In the back of your bulletin, you will see all kinds of Bible reading plans. The daily office, the uh, the. the daily prayer that we have as our devotional, other online links that you can do just little bit chunks every day to read the Bible through in a whole year because most American Christians have never done that. Let's make this one year the great, great year of the Bible for us so that we can, A, know who God is, know who we are, and know how to live our lives because that's what it does for us. Because there's a problem that each and every one of us have, both Jew and Gentile alike. And that is, number one, we all are equal in the amount of sin that's in our lives. Paul says over and over again, in quoting all these Psalms and Proverbs and Isaiah from verse 9 all the way through verse 18, he's just simply quoting scripture saying, Jew and Gentile are alike and are under sin. Are we any better, he says? Not at all, verse 9. That's an amazing thing for Paul, a Pharisee, to say. Are we any better than they are? Absolutely not. Now you have to remember back a year ago when we did walk through Romans 1 and 2. You remember Romans 1? He went after the Romans really hard. He looked at the Gentile Romans and said, Hey, you frat boys, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Remember that? It was really, wow. There's a long list of sexual practices, evil corruption, civil, corporate, and individual sin. And then Paul identifies himself as a God-fearing Jew. He's trying to obey the Ten Commandments in chapter 2, and then he goes and says, are we better off? Not at all. Moral, immoral, religious, irreligious. He's saying that they're before God, there's no difference. They're all alike. What does that mean? If you really want to know what it means, if you scroll down to verse 19, the second half of verse 19, that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. 
The word accountable means libel. What does this mean? Well, it's a judicial word. It means that we're liable for punishment. And what he's saying is no matter who you are, no matter what your record, no matter how you've lived a lo- great life of compassion and service, or a life of cruelty and exploitation, we're all alike. We're all condemned before this holy God, and we're all lost. We all deserve to be rejected by God. That's what he's saying. You might say, wait, 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 wait. No, serious, how could that be? Well, that's going to get us to our next point. But we need to understand there's an equality of sin that each and every one of us have. And Paul is saying that a criminal robbing and murdering people and a moral, religious, upright Pharisee who thinks because of his good deeds and his righteousness that God owes him blessing and people owe him respect. Paul is saying as different as those look on the surface, underneath both of those are expressions of a radical self-centeredness, self-righteousness, radical self-absorption that is sin. Now, how can that be? We're going to look at it in the next point. But I want us to see that Paul says all alike, are, are they any better than us? Not at all. There's really two implications for us. The first one is, for any of us here who have been dabbling with Christianity, playing Christianity, it's a suburban American disease, by the way, if, if you come consciously with a, pr- a model that says, okay, I got this figured out. There are some things that I must do for God, and if I do this and that for God, he'll do this and that for me. That's how it works. And you think that that is seeking God. And Paul is saying, you're not seeking God. You're actually seeking what the this and that are. You're not seeking God. People think this all the time. There must be some kind of life that's considered the good life. And that's what I must adopt. And there's some kind of life that's the bad life. And I must reject that. Hear me. That is wrong. That's exactly what Paul is saying. Whenever Paul is talking about coming to faith in Christ, whenever Jesus is calling us to believe in him and trust in him, it's not just calling us simply to stop bad living and take up good living. Because he's saying here that people who live good are no better than people who live bad. They're all spiritually lost. They're on the same place. So if you think think what it means to become a Christian is there are certain things I have to stop doing and certain things I have to start doing that God will bless me, you're wrong. And it's vital that we understand this because nobody in the world believes this except Christians. No other worldview, no other world philosophy, no other world religion says anything like this and it blows out of the water all our presuppositions. So to stop living like this and start living like this Now, it does occur. When you come to faith in Christ, you do change. But it's not the main thing. Because people who live good lives, people who live bad lives, are all alike, according to God. That's the first implication of the equality of sin. The second implication is, if you're a follower of Christ, you begin to realize how beautiful this is. 
it's called, the reformers called it the doctrine of total depravity. That every single one of us are totally depraved, meaning corrupt nature. Totally. There's nothing good in us. Verse 9, are we any better? Not at all. I, I want you to think about this. Who is writing this? Paul. Who is Paul? A Pharisee. There is probably nobody who ever lived who is more dedicated to an upright, moral living. You would want your daughter to date him. All right? And it's just amazing if you read all the way through Romans. Paul goes through all these sexual practices in chapter 1. and chapter 2, he holds up the Jewish model and says, Are we any better? No. And for Paul to say, I have come to the conclusion that through the gospel that the criminal who's killing people, robbing people, and rape, raping people on the street is equal to me is an absolutely amazing thing. But I want us to think about this. Paul was a Pharisee. And Pharisees would have considered these Roman Christians Gentiles. And a, a Jew would consider a Gentile a dog. Infidels. And they would consider them absolutely unclean. Yet, there is now in Paul, in giving his life to Christ, dedicating his life to living with these racially other people, <laughs> it's possible before the gospel, is it possible before the gospel that Paul would have looked to them to go to serve them, to be with them, and say, we're equal? <laughs> you know, could he look at these pagans and libertines and immoral people and say we're equal, not on your life. But now, here's what's going on. He's been radically changed, and the doctrine of the equality of sin changes our perspective about others. It radically rehumanized Paul and will radically rehumanize us. Because our tendency is to look down on people who are different. You know, do people do this? No. People do it all the time. Look down on others just because they are different. But when you believe this, you think it out, it tends to recenter your life in Christ and it rehumanizes you. There's all kinds of people that you would never have given the time of day to, but now you love and you respect because you recognize that you're no better. And we don't do that naturally. We do this when we have the proper understanding of the equality of sin and that radical equality that it has for each and every one of us. We also learn that sin takes us in a direction. You know, and, and we see quickly that it says, all have turned away. All. No one seeks God. No one seeks God. No one understands. Verse 10 and 11. These are directional words. It's your aim that sin naturally takes you. And therefore, your sin is not so matter of whether you're doing bad things or good things, but rather sin is a mainly a matter of what you're doing, you're doing for. We're being told here that sin makes you want to get away from God, not go toward Him. Sin makes you want to get out from under His gaze, get out from under His control, get out from under His hands, to be your own Savior, to be your own Lord. You want to keep God at arm's length and stay in control of your life. That's what sin makes you want to do. 
And you know, there's two ways to be your own Savior and Lord. One way is to make the, uh, be a law unto yourself. To say, oh, I'm a Christian, but I'll do this, but I won't do that. That's American Christianity, by the way. Okay. Oh, I, I, I make it into what I want to be. Therefore, you make Jesus into your own God and you're worshiping yourself. Or you're going to be a very, 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 very good Christian. Go to church, obey the Bible, do everything possible you can do to be like Jesus so that God has to bless you, has to save you. In which case, you're just trying to get control over God. In that case, you're not seeking God, you're seeking things from God. Now notice, the text doesn't say no one seeks blessing from God. Of course they do. The text doesn't say no one seeks answers to prayer prayer from God. Of course they do. The text doesn't say no one seeks forgiveness from God. Of course they do. The text doesn't say no one seeks spiritual. Of course they do. But no, Paul's saying no one seeks God. All your so-called serving, all your so-called doing good is really for yourself. It's away from God. It's away from others. It's a self-righteousness. It's a self-centeredness. And Paul is saying that that's the case with all of us, actually. Unless the Holy Spirit comes in and changes our hearts, no one serves God for God. No one is really seeking God. They're seeking things from God. Nobody even serves others. Because you always serve people. You always serve God as long as it benefits you. You can feel good about yourself. So you can make yourself feel good you can feel noble but Paul is reminding us that no one seeks God now of course I'm not saying that there are such things as virtuous deeds of course there are people doing very good deeds around the world but what's they're doing for we're looking at direction and what we see here is a radical radical Rehumanizing, a radical making sure that we recognize that there's no one righteous, no, not one. And this, what happens is it turns you. You start to recognize that uh, this is what makes the world a mess. I did. In high school, I was in charge of the Marine Corps Toys for Tots campaign at Woodson High School. All right? They said, anybody who's in charge of Toys for Tots gets free tickets to Foreigner. I ran into the office and talked to my principal, Buffalo Bob Phipps. I'm in, you know. So I was in charge of Toys for Tots, collected all these toys. Me and my buddies hopped in the 1964 Ford Fairlane station wagon, drove around the Washington Beltway to the Cap Center, dropped all the toys off, and got to see Foreigner. Yeah, it was awesome. But you know, it made me feel great. I was collecting all these toys for kids that the Marine Corps was going to give away to these needy kids. Isn't that a great thing? It's a good thing. I'm not denying that, but what was my doing good for? I came to realize that what's within me, it's, I'm not seeking God. I'm seeking benefits from God. God, didn't I do good? Didn't I do great, Lord? No. It was a good thing. But it was a radical self-righteousness. It was a radical self-centeredness. And what we see, I was running from God even in my good deeds. Do you see that? I hope you do. 
because God gives us the cure. Because this is the reason the world's in a mess that it is. Look at the way Paul uses scripture from verse 13 down to 17. He describes the mess the world's in. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. What a mess! Paul is describing the world here. You know, but it doesn't look like that here. You guys look good this morning. You got up at two degrees, came to church. Richie even put on a tie, you know? <laughs> you suburban people, we look good on the outside, right? But underneath all our doing good, underneath all these good deeds, working for charity, doing the right things, honoring our parents' kids, doing the right things, there's anger, resentment, discontent. There's oversensitivity. There's turning on people who harm you. And there's a great deal of discouragement and unhappiness because God is not doing in my life what he ought to be doing. It's a spiritual leprosy. And Paul here in the end as he goes into verse 21 and so forth is telling us why we need a Savior. Okay, and so starting in verse 21, he begins to open up for salvation. He says, but now a salvation or righteousness. And he's bringing us to the point. It's his way of saying you'll never be able to receive Christ's salvation unless you have your mouth silenced. All right, it says, verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. That's the first part of the cure. To have your mouth silenced means you, you don't have an excuse before God. There's no plan B before God. Uh, there's no, oh, I know I did wrong, but I can do better next time. I know I've done things wrong, but I can turn it around. I see my motives are bad, but I can change my motives. Paul says, shut up. Right? As long as we're still saying that I know I can do it, I can do, Paul says, you really haven't shut up because, and you're not ready for salvation. You can't receive the cure for this sin because you realize you can't fix yourself. You realize that even trying to fix yourself makes everything worse because every effort to somehow put it together and be a better person and really try harder is really just another reason for self-righteousness, self-justification, self-centeredness, self-sufficiency. You're making it worse. The condition of spiritually shutting up and just being quiet so you can receive the cure, by the way, doesn't mean beating yourself up either, all right? Oh, I've done so wrong. Shut up. You're still centered on yourself if you do that, if you beat yourself up. The only way to get pulled out of this radical self-righteousness and self-centeredness is to get to the end of ourselves. This means not just saying, oh, I'm sorry for my sin, I'll try to do better. You have to not only be sorry for your sin, but sorry for the reason you did anything right in your whole life. Which means you have nothing to do but receive. There's nothing you can do now. You just have to shut up, wait, and listen. R.C. Sproul passed away three weeks ago. I'm still grieving. He was a wonderful apologist and articulator of the faith. And he had a professor back in his days at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary named John Gerstner. And Dr. Gerstner put it this way. 
Because of the gospel, the way to God is wide open. No sin can hold him back because God has offered justification to the ungodly. Nothing now stands between the sinner and God but the sinner's good works. Now listen carefully. All they need is need. All they must have is nothing. And most people won't. Most people don't. They, they have, well, look at what I got, Lord. Isn't this good? Paul says, shut up. Look at how bad these are. I can shut up. See what he's saying here, all you need is need. He's saying the way you open yourself to salvation is the fact you can only receive God's salvation is not just simply repent of your sins. Pharisees repent of their sins, right? When they do something wrong, they say, oh, I did wrong. Now I'm going to do better. They repent of their sins, and they're still Pharisees. If you want to be a Christian, you don't just repent of your sins, but you begin to repent of the reason you do anything right. Now you're in a position to say, I need something completely different than just to help to live the right way. So the first thing we need to do to receive the cure is to shut up. Be in a position of receiving. And the second thing you need to do for the cure, we see in verse 18, he lists all these things that's wrong with the world, and he says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Actually, the cure has been there all along. I didn't realize it until I got later on to the week as I studied this passage. Why is there no fear before their eyes? See, if they had fear, they wouldn't be doing all these things. So therefore, the fear of the Lord is the antidote. The fear of the Lord is the cure. The problem, you know, we think of fear as just being scared. But yet, throughout the scripture, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's in Proverbs and both in Job. So what is it? We think of it as being scared. But it's not. First, if you actually start to look in the texts where that phrase, the fear of the Lord, is used. Deuteronomy 10, for example, says, What does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, love him and serve him with all your heart and soul? To fear God is to love him with all your heart and soul. Why do they call it fear then? Why don't they just call it joy? Well, let's go further. Verse 119, Because you fulfill your promise to me, I fear you. What? Because you've been so good to me, I'm filled with fear. The psalmist says to the Lord. Psalm 130, but because you have forgiven me, therefore I fear you. See, whatever the fear of the Lord is, it's increased when you see and experience God's salvation, his grace, his love, his mercy. That fear increases. The fear of God is a joyful, humbling awe of what God has done and wonder the salvation that he's given us. And it's called fear because it's not just being happy. Well, you say, why would you call it fear? Why not call it joy? Because it's not just happiness, friends. When you really see the salvation of God and what it is, on the one hand, it affirms you to the mountaintops. But it humbles you to the dust. And that's why it's called fear. So let's call it the joyful fear, awe, and wonder before the greatness of God's salvation. And when you see it that way, when you see 
God loving you like this, it turns you out of yourself. Away from being self-centered, self-righteousness. Because on the one hand, you're too humbled. You're no longer self-centered. And this joyful fear is the cure. And it happens when you see Jesus' salvation for you upon the cross. Because as we see, we don't see God. Because what we really see is God seeking us in Christ. Salvation is God seeking and God finding you. And when you know what he did for you, then it will fill you with this joyful, humbling, sin-curing fear. That's what the message of Christmas has been about. This is what the season of Epiphany is all about. He reveals himself, and he comes and he says, I had to suffer for you. I had to live for you upon the cross. I had to pay the penalty for your sin. Look at this sin. Somebody had to pay for it. I was stripped naked on the cross so I could clothe you with this righteousness. And I can say to the Heavenly Father, hey, this guy's with me. This gal's with me. They're mine. And when you see that, not, oh, we have the ability and we just have to try harder. But the salvation that God offers is a God seeking us, finding us, coming to us at an infinite cost to yourself. That will fill you with a holy, joyful fear. And you will find that the cure has begun in you. Have you felt a little naked, you know, exposed today? That's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. But let's not just leave it there. Let's wear the the robe of righteousness that God gives us in Christ. What an advantage that we have through the word of God that teaches us all these wonderful truths. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that as now while we come to the Holy Communion, we're in a position where you can drive us even closer into the center of our being and the cure for our sin. We see that you sought us because we didn't seek you. You had to do it because if you, we, you had sat and waited for us to come and find you, we never would have. We thank you, therefore, that it's such a wonderful, moving story of what you have done for us. But most importantly is the objective work of Jesus Christ on the cross that opened a way for us. So now the only thing standing between us and you is this belief that we still have control of our lives and that we can earn our salvation. I pray you would help each and every one of us now in this room to set aside our sin and set aside our righteousness and receive your free salvation the cure for our sin, the cure for our hearts. And I pray that we'd shut up, receive it, and begin the cure now in us as we see the love and the grace and the mercy you have, and we would have that joyful awe. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.